Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday. Of course, it is time for Listener Mail. Uh, I don't know if I have anything interesting at all to say at the beginning of this one, except should we just jump right into the moons of Mars? Let's do it. Right into the arms of Mars. Okay, uh, you mind if I do this first message from Eric? Go for it. Eric says, hi, Joe and Robert and producer Seth loved the episodes on Phobos and Deimos. I had a couple of things I wanted to mention. I might have missed it, but I didn't hear you mention that Phobos orbits so close to Mars that it appears to travel backwards, meaning that it rises in Mars' western sky and sets in the east. This is because it is lower than areosynchronous orbit, or an orbital altitude at which a satellite would complete one orbit per one rotation of the planet. Deimos is above areostationary orbit, so it rises in the east like the sun, but its orbit is low enough that if it rose at sunset, it would set at about midnight rather than close to dawn. Earth's moon has a similar motion, but it only moves about 13 degrees per day relative to the stars. You mentioned that Phobos has gravity, so you would still fall down if you jumped. While this is true, it's incomplete. A typical jump speed is about 3 meters per second, or about 5 feet per second, which means that an equivalent jump on Phobos would get you to a height of about 900 meters, or 3,000 feet. The escape velocity of Phobos is 11 meters per second, which is quite a bit more than your typical jump speed of between 2 and 4 meters per second. That said, a high jumper could get above 2 kilometers, and a pole vaulter could almost certainly reach escape velocity. Wow, that's interesting. Though I wonder if that's calculating pole vaulter speed, uh, uh, vertical speed, or or horizontal speed. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, Eric goes on. Demos is another story. Its escape velocity is 2.5 meters per second, which is definitely possible for anyone in reasonably good physical shape. So if you landed there on Deimos, you would probably want to either weight yourself down or tether yourself if you go out on a spacewalk. Note that my numbers don't take into account the fact that the force of gravity decreases as you get further away from the surface, or the dramatic changes in gravity due to the extreme variation in terrain height, which on Phobos varies from 0.4% to 0.9% of Earth gravity at the highest and lowest points, respectively. Anyways, just some things I find fascinating about the Martian moons. Thanks for the great episode, and keep up the good work, Eric. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you, Eric, for writing in with that. I, I know the, uh, the backwards uh, uh, nature of Phobos. I know that came up in the research, and for some reason or another, I, I ended up not putting it in. I think I just maybe got too distracted by the other weird things about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yes, this is very much the case. Yeah. Awesome email, Eric. Thank you. L- love stuff like this. All right. What do we have next? Uh, what does the, the mailbot Carney have for us? Okay. Well, this next one is very short, so maybe I'll do this one too, and then uh, okay. I'll let you take over after that. So this one is from Brian, and this is responding to the part in uh, our Phobos and Demos part one, where we talked about the conspiracy theory guy, Alex Jones, claiming in an interview that Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, the Apollo 11 astronaut who's been to the moon, 
that Aldrin had admitted to him that the Phobos monolith, this big boulder on the surface of Phobos, was the work of aliens and that it had something to do with Egypt and all this stuff. Uh, And I was like, what? I don't believe Buzz Aldrin said that. So I looked Mm -hmm. it up. And in the interview that he was referring to, the claim he attributed to Aldrin was actually something Aldrin said to make fun of. Like he said it as a joke and then explicitly disavowed it. He was like laughing and said, obviously, I don't believe that. Uh, So Brian is responding to that, and Brian says, I couldn't help but be reminded of how poorly text captures conversation, either by accident or by ill intent, depending on the interpreter. The best popular example is My Cousin Vinny and Ralph Macchio's character being interviewed by the police. Rather than repeat the issue, here is the video, and Brian attaches a link to this scene from My Cousin Vinny. Rob, do, do you know this movie? Do you know the scene? I do not. I've I've never seen my cousin Vinny. I'm uh, just oh. vaguely aware of it because of you know the it's supposed to be good. It has some good performances. Good actors in it. Yeah, this is a classic like uh, legal comedy. I guess it's also it's like a weird like it's a fish out of water movie. So it's got Joe Pesci playing this tough guy from Brooklyn who happens to be the cousin of a kid played by Ralph Macchio who gets uh who gets falsely accused of murder in a small town in Alabama while he's on the way to the beach. And so there's a scene in the movie where Ralph Macchio and his friend have just been driving along on the highway and they get pulled over by police and they end up being interrogated by police for a murder, but they don't realize that that's why they're, they've been captured. They think that they've been captured because one of them accidentally shoplifted a can of tuna. And so because they think they're there on account of the tuna, they're all, they're all just saying like, yeah, we'll just admit to it. It's fine. We're, we're sorry we did it. Uh, sorry, I guess this is taking too long to explain. I- anyway, the, the sheriff eventually asks them, so when did you shoot the clerk? And Ralph Macchio responds, I shot the clerk. I shot the clerk uh, with incredulity. But then the transcript of that interview <laughs> is read back in court with him just repeatedly admitting that he shot the clerk. And I think that's what Brian is getting at here. Oh, okay. I, I guess, well, uh, like I said, I've never seen it, but uh, but I am familiar with it because, of course, Fred Gwynn is in it. Yes, um, Herman Munster. He plays yeah. uh, Judge, I think. But yeah, he was, of course, Herman Munster, and he played uh, Judd Crandall in the 1989 Pet Cemetery. Right. Don't uh, go down that road, yeah. Yeah, he was, yeah, arguably, I think he was he was maybe the best part about that movie. Like, he, he, he gave a really solid performance. Yes, in in my cousin Vinny, he plays a very a very uh, stiff Alabama judge who does not take kindly to any any Brooklyn nonsense. <laughs> but anyway, Brian, I mean, so if if you were to look at a transcript of what Buzz Aldrin said, I mean, even in the transcript, it would be clear because he would say, "I don't." He says, "I don't believe that." But if you listen to it, it's even clearer because he's like laughing when he's saying the the thing that is attributed to him. I mean, no nobody genuinely listening to this could think that he literally meant yes that the aliens were practicing building a pyramid on the moon phobos so that's obviously not what he meant and it's clear through what he says later but it's also clear in the tone all right here's a short message from lydia lydia writes uh more moons Love the podcast and definitely interested in more space exploration. Thanks for the introduction to The Expanse. I mean, okay, we we, we must ascend. More moons. Yeah, yeah. And, and indeed, the, the Expanse continues to be a, a fun series. I think they have like uh, the, the TV adaptation. I think they have maybe one more 
season coming out, maybe two. I don't know. It's and then it's one of those that I think it could potentially be picked up by somebody else. Uh, and of course, there uh, there are a number of books out there, and the books are good too. I, I read the first one, and um, and my wife's been reading on them this summer. All right, this next message is about Bones in Wyoming. I think this is a response to an episode where we asked whether we had any listeners in the very sparsely populated U.S. state of Wyoming, and we heard from Brandon. Brandon is not the only Wyomingite. What do you you call them, Wyomingers? Uh, Not the only one to respond, but Brandon says, I exist. During your episode about Bones, you mentioned Wyoming, and surely I am not the only avid listener to your podcast, uh, but I most certainly do exist. In the interest of full transparency, there are much better places for you to come in Wyoming than, uh, Brandon says, that structure. I think we were talking about a house made out of bones that's somewhere in Wyoming. Right, or it's made with rocks that contain fossils, uh, something to that that extent. Yeah, so Brandon says, I have seen it myself, uh, talking about this house, and you're going to have a hard time setting up. Uh, (laughs) Wait, this is referring – I think we said we might do a live show there. Anyway, uh, Brandon says, the Medicine Bow area itself, though, it's worth a visit. A lot of Native American history there, and you can actually see very close an actual medicine wheel. Brandon. Oh, well, I'm still, the, he did, you know, Brandon still did not talk me out of it because um, this still sounds like a great place to record. We'll go there. Mm-hmm. It'll be difficult to set up. We won't tell anybody about it. So it'll just be us. Right. Uh, and, and then we're done. And you'll never know if we were actually there or if we're lying. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, we would actually go there. Okay. But we just, we wouldn't tell anybody. Or maybe, you know, we'd, we'd let, we'd let Brandon know. Then Brandon could, could watch like through the window? I can't remember if it has windows or not. You sign it somewhere. Let Carney press his hands into the wet cement and, and yeah. sign his name. All right. Uh, here is a bit of listener mail. This is from Mars, uh, someone who identifies as Mars. I guess Mars is their name. Mars is the name of, of a god. People can be called Mars too. Go for it. They write, hello, Robert and Joe. I have happily added stuff to blow your mind to my listen list since the beginning of COVID and check off most episodes, except I'm sad to confess I avoid Weird House Cinema for the sole reason that my current viewing list is longer than my life expectancy and I don't want to add any more must-sees. Fair enough. Um, They continue. I make my living in the aviation industry and have been watching the evolution of drones closely, not often with excitement. (laughs) However, this one really got me interested the Smellocopter. I am completely in awe of this type of development. C, and then they included a link. Although, does this bring us closer to the singularity? Anyway, love the show and love the rabbit holes I can get sent down. Keep up the great work, Mars. So I followed through to this link. Uh, so this is a link to an article on the webpage for the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, the ASME, and the, the article is called An, An Autonomous Drone Searches with Smell from uh, April 2021 by Michael Abrams. And so, yeah, it, it describes this tiny autonomous aerial vehicle that is guided by smells uh, that was designed by researchers who were like, hey, you know, our uh, our cars are starting to sort of see based on light and our phones are listening, right? So, so why not add more senses to robots? And so they, they tried to make this um, olfactorily sensitive, if that's a word, uh, robot that is based on the uh, olfactory anatomy of moths. Hmm. I'll, I'll just quote from Abrams' article here. 
Moths are some of the most sensitive chemical sensors of the insects. Thanks to some 200-odd million years of refinement, they can find flowers or mates miles away. They are also easy to breed and handle. The Manduca sexta hawk moths used by the researchers are palm-sized, with antennae that are roughly toothpick in diameter. The moths were anesthetized in a refrigerator before researchers detached the antennae, which stays biologically and chemically active for four hours. Researchers connected the antennae to a circuit board with tiny wires placed at either end. They attached the antennae sensor to an inexpensive off-the-shelf quadcopter to create the device. When the antenna picks up a scent, it sends an electrical signal to the circuit board that directs the drone according to a simple algorithm. This is this is this is dark. This is weird. <laughs> it goes to places I didn't expect. The smellocopter. Yeah, it, it has a cute name though. I, I did not think we were going to get like a bioborg thing here. Uh, now I, I'm wondering. Okay, so are these going to be like the drug dogs of the future? Like you just release these over a city and they like sniff out everybody, every mm-hmm. house that has cannabis in it. But uh, but the author here claims they cite at least one idea of how this could be used, which is to locate disaster survivors in a disaster zone. So if if it's actually used for that, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, certainly nefarious uses for it. Uh, Less ethical uses for it come to mind. Uh, the the author here also says that it could be used to pinpoint chemical leaks or to find the source of greenhouse gases. So okay, hmm. but anyway, Mars. Uh, yeah, th- this this is very strange. So so thanks for sending this our way. All right. Our next bit of listener mail is one we meant to record. I actually did record for last week's listener mail, but then we held it back. Yeah, this was from one of the many Dans that wrote to us last week. Uh, We originally recorded a response to it. But this message mentions the Digital Underground, the hip-hop group, uh, which we discussed in our response. And then right after we recorded the episode, but before it was released, we saw news on the internet about the death of Gregory Jacobs, also known as Shock G of the Digital Underground. Uh, We thought it'd be kind of weird to release our talking about that without addressing the fact that he'd passed away. So we wanted to re-record it for today. Yeah. All right, this one comes to us from Dan and says, Hello, Robert, Joe, and Seth. As an avid Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener, for years there is one film you have sometimes mentioned that I am surprised you have not covered yet on Weird House Cinema. No, not Highlander or even Highlander 2, The Quickening. The film I'm speaking of is Nothing But Trouble. (laughs) This was a film I saw midway through back in the 90s on HBO. I had no idea what it was about, really but immediately felt like I needed to take a shower afterwards due to the high amount of ickiness, gore, and nauseous prosthetic makeup on Dan Aykroyd and those weird mutant twins. However, this was also the first time I heard Digital Underground without knowing who they were, so it wasn't all bad. I really enjoyed your episode on weird music from a couple of weeks back, as well as the companion episode on Record Store Society. I would like to recommend one music video, although it may not be weird enough for your tastes. This is the video for George Clinton's electro-funk classic Atomic Dog. I've included a link below. Also, can you please explain the phrase, throwing cabbages into the audience? Rob mentioned uh, when you were discussing possibly in Michigan, and I have no idea what this means. Dan. Okay, so a number of things to address in this message. Uh, Nothing but trouble. I am pretty sure that came up when we were talking about the Ridley Scott movie Prometheus. And I was deriding, um, what's his name? Guy Pierce's makeup in that movie by saying that it was so awful he looks like Dan Aykroyd in Nothing But Trouble, which is kind of true. 
Uh, I've never seen all of Nothing But Trouble. It's one of those movies I've, I've seen like parts of multiple times. They used to show it on TV a lot, or at least, I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it is a movie that is so ugly, it literally hurts. It's literally painful <laughs> on the eyes and like in parts of the head as you're watching it. It is a unique film, though. It is uniquely weird. It is... It is the thing that emerged from Dan Aykroyd's strange mind, and and I do mm-hmm. love it for that. There's, I guess it's it's nobody's favorite movie, <laughs> but <laughs> I do find it perversely interesting. And indeed, that scene uh, where where well, there are two scenes I think where Digital Underground performs, but the main scene, kind of coming back to Fred Gwynn, there's this uh, this country um, courthouse scene, and Digital Underground is on tour, and they've been brought in and uh, charged with speeding or something. I don't remember, but they basically perform as part of their defense or something to that effect. So there's this huge musical number with Digital Underground performing. you got Shock G in there. He, he, uh, he, he takes on the Humpty Hump persona. you got Tupac in there as well. And then Dan Aykroyd's grotesque old man character is uh, is is uh, playing the organ, uh, so it's it's tremendous, and I do I, I imagine for some people it was their their introduction to Digital Underground, which was just a you know fabulous act, and Shock G was uh, you know undeniably a, a huge talent. So yeah, it was it was uh, sad to hear about his passing. Yeah, I was listening to the Humpty Dance earlier today. It's fantastic. Yeah, the the song they do uh, same old song is it same old song that they perform ended in, in um, Nothing But Trouble. I don't know. I think so. Uh, anyway. Great track as well. A number of hits. Uh, well beyond, you know, just the, you know, the Humpty Dance, which I guess was the, the most famous uh, digital underground track. They, they had so many great, great tracks that came out. So uh, you know, if, you, if you've never heard them, go look them up. And if you haven't heard them in a while, uh, now's a good time. But wait, what was this thing also? Yeah, you, you said that... Oh, uh, the cabbages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, glad to hear you mention uh, Record Store Society, which, of course, uh, if you haven't heard our, our crossovers with Seth, uh, our producer Seth has a podcast called The Record Store Society, where they talk about music. We did a couple of crossover episodes, uh, so you can check those out, or you can look up uh, The Record Store Society wherever you get your podcasts. But also, yeah, in that crossover episode we did with Seth, um, we talked about a music video called Possibly in Michigan, and you said that it was not quite at the throwing cabbages into the audience level of comedy. So I think that's what Dan is asking about. What does that yeah, mean? That was just my sort of on the spur of the moment attempt to try and explain how I felt about the varying levels at which creators and performers uh, and composers, etc., are aware of the audience perhaps acknowledging the audience, toying with the audience, and in the most extreme cases, like straight up trolling the audience, mm-hmm. you know, or even provoking the audience, uh, which would be, uh, in, it, yeah, and I think I divided it into two categories there, but if I had to rethink it, I would say you got, you got four different levels, roughly. There's, there are performers that are throwing cabbages at each other on the stage. There are performers that are doing that and then occasionally allowing uh, a cabbage to fly into the audience. Then there are the, um, the performers who are throwing cabbages into the audience, uh, you know, in, with intention. And then there are cases where they're throwing them at audience members. Uh, and uh, I don't, I, I'm still not sure this actually clarifies anything, but that's what I was talking about. Okay, so for you, uh, possibly in Michigan was throwing cabbages into the audience, but not at the audience. I guess so, yeah. Um, or wait, maybe but- I'm misremembering it. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to explore this topic too much further and go into like a full thesis. On it or anything. Okay. <laughs> but it's just sort of like the loose way I sometimes think of it. Like sometimes I feel like um, 
for instance, in electronic music and ID, IDM, sometimes there'll be a track and the track is really great, but it'll have some like atrocious title that sometimes I feel like it's just like the, the creator is having having a laugh at the uh, perhaps at, at uh, the audience's expense. But sometimes it doesn't matter because the track is so good, you know. Uh, but then also sometimes the track is just really weird and weird to the point where I'm like, come on. Are you just testing me to see what I'll put up with as a listener? Uh, I don't know. You know, I feel like that's where there's some significant overlap between electronic musicians and uh, fast food menus. Or sometimes <laughs> you ever get that feeling you're being trolled by a fast food menu because they're trying to get you to say the name of a fast food menu item that is just absolutely uh, just fatal to your personal dignity to say out loud. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, it can also take place in, um, you know, independent restaurants that have kind of cutesy titles for things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's like, will I say that out loud or will I just say, I would like this sandwich or uh-huh. <laughs> something to that effect? Is it time for Weird House Cinema, listener mail? I guess it is. We already sort of got in there in the last message. Okay, so this is from James. James says, Hi, guys. I've been listening for several months and have been loving the podcast, and I'm overdue in reaching out to give you props. Uh, Regarding the TurboGrafx-16 segment of a recent listener mail episode, I think this all got started when we were talking about Gunhead having some kind of adaptation for the TurboGrafx-16. Um but anyway, in a previous listener mail, somebody brought up a game for the Turbo Graphics that was like the most bizarre concept. It was like a racing RPG, so you'd have, where you'd have to go around to different places on a map and like meet and talk to people and convince them to race with you. Uh, a fantastic concept. But uh, James here has an answer of what this is. Uh, James says it is a racing game. It is called Final Lap Twin. It's actually a hybrid RPG racer with an overworld map complete with random encounters in which defeating opponents in races earns you character money that can be spent on various car upgrades in towns. There's an interesting boss battle mechanic, too. It's a terrific game. I mean, that sounds so weird. I kind of have to look it up. (laughs) I'm wondering what other types of uh, like niche games could also add an RPG element. Could you have like an RPG pinball game where you have to like go around to different pinball cabinets and like talk to people about them? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it, uh, it sounds kind of good. Put the right spin on it and uh, okay. some, maybe somebody will make it. I mean, in, in a way, it reminds me of the various mini games that you have in sandbox uh, games, you know, mm. like big Grand Theft Auto or Cyberpunk style um, uh, things where you're doing a lot of role playing and, and whatnot, and then you're talking to people about playing pool with them or playing poker with them or engaging in races with them. Right. The playing cards in Red Dead Redemption and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which was fun. That was my favorite part of that game, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they should just have made a full on poker sim. <laughs> My funniest experience ever playing that game was uh, I spent a long time playing cards in a room where like night and day came and went and, uh, <laughs> and you know, in the game, not in real life, uh, but I won a bunch of money. I was like victorious and I walked out of the cards room and then just immediately the moment I walked out the door witnessed my horse getting hit by a train. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, that's rough. Yeah. You win some, you lose some. Yeah. Okay, James's message goes on. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, James says, uh, The rest of the games mentioned in that segment had me smiling, nodding, and reminiscing fondly, too. Other honorable mentions. 
Alien Crush, a grotesque H.R. Giger-inspired pinball game. Hey, there you go. I didn't even know this was coming. Uh, a pinball game. Uh, dragon Spirit, an overhead shooter where the player controls a fire-breathing dragon. And Silent Debuggers, a sci-fi horror game competently capturing the tension and terror of the original Alien movie. Huh. Huh. A terrible title, but yeah. you know that that sounds good. I I did look up stills of um, that Giger pinball machine, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it does kind of look. It's Giger esque, but more purpley and pink. Yeah, it's like what if you were playing pinball, but the pinball was the insides of an alien you were dissecting. I just looked it up. Alien Crush has a really good picture of an alien on like its box art. It's got this thing with many eyes, kind of a big pink V with you know I don't know at least at least ten eyes. Anyway, James goes on, I've been loving the Weird House Cinema episodes as well. I was intrigued enough by your discussion of frogs that I bought myself a used copy on eBay while listening to the pod. I trust it will be $4 well spent. Uh, James, uh, yeah, let us know the verdict once you watch it. This goes back a ways, but the Battle for Indoor episode brought back enough nostalgia for me to dig out the old VHS copy that my dad helped me record back when it aired during one of their rare free preview weeks back in the 80s. Oh, this is when they'd give you like the Disney Channel for free for a week. I remember mm-hmm. this. People yep, would tape yep. a lot off of it. Yep, yep. You'd bust out the the VCR. You'd, mm-hmm. you'd you'd program the VCR, or you'd be there to to manually remove commercials if it was a channel that had commercials. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then James says, and wow, that one may have been best left to my childhood memories as it does not have the same charm for me as an adult. You guys are brave. Smiley face. Uh, again, kudos for an entertaining and educational podcast. It's proven itself to be an integral part of my remote work sanity. Cheers, James. All right. Yeah. I don't know, but battle for indoor held up for me, but maybe I would say maybe I'm more foolish than brave, but, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I like that one. And again, I should mention that the the in those Ewok movies are on Disney Plus now. They they finally uh, they listened to us, I guess. They were like Rob and Joe said that we need to put we need to put uh, the Ewok movies back up, uh, or we need to put them up where people can 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 watch them. And uh, now you can. All right, we're going to go ahead and close the mailbag here. But I'm excited to pick up where we left off next time because we didn't even get to discussions of uh, more discussions of Sean Connery's accent in Highlander uh, <laughs> and so forth. There's some good stuff. Yeah, already in the chamber for next week. So uh, join us again next Monday for more listener mail. And, and hey, send us listener mail. Impress us. Send us something really interesting that we won't be able to resist reading on air. That's right. And in the meantime, you can check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Weird House Cinema in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you'll find wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. And, you know, tell people about us, you know. Say, hey, we heard this cool episode on frogs, a fabulous motion picture. (laughs) So, um, yeah, just share us with your friends and family. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, say something friendly, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.